Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, Donna Hoffman, Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa. Hi, Donna. Good afternoon, Ben. Good afternoon to you. And good afternoon to Jonathan Hasid as well, Associate Professor in Political Science at Iowa State University. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Ben. We have plenty to get to, as is usual on Politics Wednesday. Let me outline a few of the things we hope to touch on later in the hour. That breaking news we heard at the top of the hour from NPR, uh, Congressman George Santos facing calls to resign uh, from um, Long Island GOP leaders. Um, Also, we want to look at uh, a number of things having to do with the new House leadership, those new rules, the concessions that uh, Speaker McCarthy um, agreed to in order to gain the necessary votes to become Speaker. Also, a House investigation launched yesterday into federal law enforcement and national security agencies, uh, that vote to cut IRS funding. Also, a new committee to examine U.S. strategic competition with China. And Jonathan, we know you have China uh, expertise to lean on for that. Also, Biden's classified documents, those discovered, how do they compare with the Mar-a-Lago ones uh, in Trump's case and uh, Biden's recent summit uh, over the last couple of days with the leaders of Mexico and Canada to address the southern border crisis. But first of all, uh, let's talk about uh, Governor Reynolds' uh, sixth condition of the state address yesterday evening where she outlined her priorities, um, highlighting uh, a more ambitious, far-reaching, what proponents call a school choice plan. Let's hear um, an excerpt of her uh, speech yesterday. As expected, she emphasized education and shared this so-called school choice plan that would allow families to send students to private institutions using state funding. Every parent should have a choice of where to send their child, and that should not be limited to families who can afford it. My school choice bill will create create education savings accounts for families who choose to send their child to a private school. The state will contribute $7,598 to that account, which is the amount of funding the state provides for each child who attends a public school. For students currently attending a private school, the plan will be phased in, focusing first on the families with the lowest income levels And in three years, every family will have a choice in education, and no child will be limited by income or zip code. Speaking with the press after this speech, the Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer said he supported the governor's plan. The goal of the whole bill is to to raise the entire education system up, add competition, uh, whether it's in rural or urban, we want to add more competition um, to bring everybody up. From the other side of the aisle, the House Minority Leader, Democrat Jennifer Confirst, told reporters that Iowans were unlikely to support the education plan without income limits. Iowans didn't like the plan when there was, were income limits on it. They're certainly not going to like it when it means that a family, a rich family in Des Moines, can put their money in savings and take taxpayer dollars to their private school while public schools across the state crumble. Donna Hoffman, your thoughts uh, first uh, on the, this, the governor's third attempt. She initially 
proposed it in 2021 at uh, taxpayer funding for private schools. Well, so one of the things to note about this new plan is that it's quite different from um, her previous version that they talked about uh, in the previous two sessions, as you mentioned, um, that had a limited number of educational savings accounts that would be established. It was 10000 in the old plan. It would be essentially unlimited here. It was, um, uh, it was limited in terms of uh, income to low income and mid income or moderate income families in Iowa. And the amount uh, that the state would put in those uh, educational savings accounts was 5500 So this is substantially um, greater in terms of the impact this could have. Um, it's, more, it's a more ambitious plan. And in part, I'm sure the governor feels comfortable in doing this. Uh, another one of the themes that she mentioned in her, her um, address uh, several times yesterday was uh, being bold. And this is certainly a bold plan, but she is a little bit emboldened in the sense that in the, the primaries in June 2022, mm-hmm. um, she specifically targeted some of the House Republicans um, who she saw as being responsible for her um, plan last year going down. Yeah. And um, five of those were incumbents, uh, four of them lost, only one of those in the primary that she opposed actually won that primary. So um, not only did she get some people to support her in that sense, uh, but she also flexed her muscles in in that way. And so House Republicans may be a little bit less likely um, to oppose her on this. Uh, Time will tell. Yeah. Okay. Jonathan, your thoughts on this uh, new plan, latest plan? And as Donna um, pointed out, um, she targeted uh, successfully some of uh, the people in her own party, lawmakers who resisted this in, in previous sessions. Well, it certainly makes it less likely that they'll resist this time. I mean, it's passed through the Senate before, so the Iowa House was the stumbling block. And mm-hmm. now, of course, uh, Republicans have expanded their majority in the Iowa House. Uh, Kim Reynolds won a pretty convincing re-election victory. So I imagine that this time it, it, something like it will pass. Uh, you know, I, I wonder how it will play out in rural areas, though, that don't really have private schools. You know, of course, Iowa is a pretty rural state, and, uh, you know, or urban areas may have uh, – school choice, but in rural areas, often there's nothing. Uh, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the politics of that play out in those places. Yeah, yeah. back to you, Donna, and the remark we just heard from, uh, played from the minority leader, a Democrat, Confirst, um, uh, you know, talking about this income limit. Now, that's a change from previous versions a- as well. Uh, this phase in over, if I understand it correctly, like three years and after three years, no income limits, right? It, it's, it's, uh, why would that be a change? Uh, would that be um, helping uh, more rural legislators, lawmakers get on board here? Well, it would, uh, unlikely, um, I would think in that sense. Now, maybe um, you have uh, you know, the dynamics of what uh, Representative Converse were, was talking about are, are actually really kind of important in this. And that's probably how the Democrats are going to message around this as well, in that you're, subs- you're subsidizing, you know, rather than allowing uh, lower and moderate income families an, an opportunity here, um, you're opening the door into a message of, well, actually what you're doing is subsidizing more wealthy families that are potentially already sending their children to private school, mm-hmm. and you're just allowing them to use taxpayer money then to fund a private education that they were going to do anyway. Um, and so that that personal money of theirs goes to something else, um, and the public money goes to that education. So, you know, uh, I think the, the likelihood for the governor to get something here is pretty high in this particular session. I'm not sure she's going to get everything she wants. Um, and we should note here that there's a new education reform committee 
um, in the House that that was just um, put together by um, Speaker Grassley as well that will um, be looking at the finer points of this. And so it's, um, you know, that is where the details will be hammered out. I'm not sure that I expect her to get everything that she wants. Um, and that might be one of the things that comes back are those lower levels uh, of, uh, or the cap, I should say, on who gets to, to qualify for this. And, you know, in that sense, then the governor can say my proposal was really bold, but I'll still, you know, take a, a part uh, of what I get here. And, you know, that's one of the ways negotiations sometimes go forward. You ask for the maximum and um, and you may be satisfied with something that's a little bit uh, uh, lower. But if you can certainly get with your expanded majorities, we should add again here, um, everything you want, you're going to try for that. But we'll see what the, the sausage making, if you will, mm-hmm. looks like mm-hmm. um, in the House on the details of it. If, you, if you've just joined us, Donna Hoffman, um, along with political scientist Jonathan Hasid on this edition of River to River. Join us, uh, for instance, with your reaction to the governor's uh, latest plan to help fund private schools with taxpayer money or any other things you may have heard in her address. one 780 River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Let's go to Paul calling from Algona. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ben. Hey, I was wondering, so any taxpayer can walk into a public school board meeting. Uh, what would be the reciprocal version of that for a uh, private organization running these schools, you know, uh, to uh, go into their board meeting and uh, at least hear what they're doing, make sure they're not teaching kids wackadoodle stuff with uh, public money? Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, you're talking. That's my question. Yeah, talking oversight there, Paul. Um, who, who can tackle that? Uh, Jonathan or Donna? Jump in. Well, I, I, w- I will, you know, attempt Go ahead, this. go ahead. Um, yeah. the, the local uh, control, I mean, that's one of the aspects of electing local school boards is so that you have local control over uh, your local schools. Um, there's a mishmash. Uh, there's going to be a mishmash of governance styles, depending on what kind of private education that you um, that you pick out of this. But they're not electing. I don't know of a single one in Iowa that's going to the voters of that area and, and saying, let us elect um, you know, the people who are going to set the policies for this school that you have with public schools. And so, um, you know, Paul brings up an important point here, which is that, um, you know, if, if this is about parental rights is a buzzword, both at the federal level and the state level currently, um, you know, what kind of rights are parents going to assert in um, in these schools if this public money is coming in? What kind of um, influence do they have over this? And the answer is, you know, currently not a lot. Now, that's one of the things about the whole notion of choice here is that you're now a consumer in this sense. And as a parent, you need to investigate what the um, what the curriculum is, what the um, control mechanisms and the influence mechanisms and who governs things in those particular situations are. Mm-hmm. Thanks, uh, Paul in Algona, for that question. Uh, that great question. Uh, let, let's move on to one other highlight um, of uh, Governor Reynolds' uh, condition of the state address yesterday. She touched on many things, um, but um, let's talk about abortion as another hot-button issue here in our state politics. Now, uh, Governor Reynolds did not outline plans to further restrict abortion in the state, but called on lawmakers to increase funding uh, for nonprofit organizations that encourage alternatives to abortion with an emphasis on addressing the needs of fathers. So tonight, I'm calling on the legislature to expand the MOMS program to promote paternal involvement and address the needs of fathers. This new funding would allow us to provide nonprofit grants 
to assist at-risk at dads, as well as mentorships for school-aged males. This session, in everything we do, let's promote strong and healthy families. Donna, uh, let's start with you, well, your, your comment on her remarks here, n notably not calling for further restrictions. Um, there's a, a court ruling awaited, isn't there? Right. And if you paid attention to the election that we just had in November, <clears throat> the um, governor, as she was campaigning for re-election, did not talk about uh, further legislative action in terms of restricting reproductive rights. Um, that was both a, um, a, a tactic in terms of how she won her campaign, but that is continuing on because they are awaiting court action to see whether the um, six-week uh, abortion ban that was passed previously in 2017, I believe, um, it will um, will have a, a favorable for them appeal um, in the court. So that is still playing out. We got a decision late in December um, that is being appealed. Now, if that is um, uh, denied by the courts in that the six-week ban does not survive, um, this latest round of court challenges, then I think it is highly likely, even though this hasn't been articulated, that there will be legislative um, action in terms of, um, uh, you know, abortion uh, access and restricting that in um, the state. But that has not been um, a focus. And that's also one of the things in, high in hindsight, looking back at the 2020 midterm election, that where voters could perceive that abortion was directly on the ballot, um, reproductive rights won uniformly. Where you were in a state where it wasn't the central focus, um, other things, it was more like a normal election in, in many ways. And so that certainly played out in Iowa. We saw a red wave, for example, um, in Iowa that we did not see materialize in the rest of the country, mm -hmm. in part because of some of these dynamics. Yeah. And uh, Governor Reynolds making um, hay about that because she said, hey, Florida is getting all the focus here. But Iowa was another state where a big red wave uh, was felt in those November elections. Uh, Donna and uh, Jonathan, let's move to uh, Congress um, uh, and the breaking news that we heard at the top of the hour but before we move on to these new House rules that uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, will be operating with, as will all the members. Now, Republican officials on Long Island are now calling for Representative George Santos. He has been sworn in to resign. Um, he's facing multiple inquiries to his finances, campaign spending, fabrications of all kinds on the campaign trail. Uh, this is a Nassau County Party chairman, GOP chairman, uh, calling uh, for this first-term Republican uh, to resign, saying they lost confidence of the Republicans in his district, saying that the Santos campaign was one of, quote, deceit, lies, and fabrication, to further quote Joseph Cairo Jr., this party chairman. He's disgraced the House, U.S. House of Representatives. We do not consider him one of our Congress people. Today, on behalf of the Nassau County Republican Committee, I am calling for his immediate resignation. Jonathan, does this signal the end of uh, George Santos, what would be very short time in Congress? Well, I suppose it's up to him. You know, no one can really force him to resign Congress, and it would be up to uh, the McCar House of McCarthy Representatives. McCarthy can't force him? Uh, the, McCarthy can't, can't force him? You can't force a member McCarthy, out? McCarthy, yeah, McCarthy probably could force him out, uh, but of course it would require support of the caucus, yeah. and um, the Republican caucus has such a narrow majority that it would be interesting to see if the um, McCarthy would have the stomach to, for that fight. Uh, mm -hmm. I imagine that, you know, some there would be, and of course, Santos supported McCarthy's uh, bid to be House Speaker, and so... 
you know, it may be that McCarthy uh, owes him a bit for that. Um, but, you know, it's up to the House itself to regulate its own membership. And so if George Santos doesn't want to resign and if the House takes no action, then he, he doesn't have to. I mean, I can't imagine that he'll win re-election uh, in, when his term is up, given his preposterous frauds. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing that, that really seems most serious about them is the potential campaign finance issues, where he, here we have someone who, by his own congressional um, finance declarations, was essentially broke when he first ran for Congress and then suddenly had $750,000 to lend to his own campaign and two years later. Um, awfully fishy. Uh, and so barring criminal misconduct, uh, we'll have to see how the dynamics of the House play out. Given their, their narrow majority, you know, I imagine there's going to be some reluctance to tackle this head on. Yeah, undoubtedly a valuable vote for uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy in his, his leadership uh, battle there. We had the entirety of next of last week spent doing that. Donna, your thoughts on uh, George Santos? Yeah, I kind of think, given all the things that are pummeling him at the moment, I really would kind of be surprised if he is able to finish out this two-year period of, of a Congress. Um, but we will see. And certainly McCarthy needs him because his numbers, as, as you noted, are pretty small. And so it'll be interesting now that Nassau County Republicans have weighed in on this, what national Republicans do, because my guess is McCarthy will continue to be silent um, in this sense. But, you know, he also, uh, Santos, that is, is... Um, uh, also, uh, you know, potentially under investigation in Brazil for uh, for yeah. fraud. And so he has a nu- we mentioned the campaign finance violations. Um, and so there's a number of things that are coming at him. And um, and so it will be interesting to see how he uh, how he navigates that. And of course, we know he's not a straight, sh- pardon me, a straight shooter in the sense of, um, you know, telling us tr- truths here. Um, the House certainly could expel him. A two thirds margin in the House could expel him. Um, and you may, in fact, have, uh, you know, at some point uh, a tipping point there, but I wouldn't expect it right at this moment. Yeah, I wonder what it says about the GOP. I mean, wouldn't it set an important precedent to oust someone like this um, rather than being perhaps short-sighted for one vote um, to draw an important line? Um, Jonathan, sure, embellish. All politicians embellish, but you cannot fabricate your in nearly your entire bio out of thin air isn't that an important line for the GOP to draw here? I mean, it should be. If we were in normal political times, it would have been. You know, 15 or 20 years ago, absolutely. You would, you would certainly be, you would, you'd be forced to resign immediately. But now, you know, the, the GOP in particular seems to have a very high appetite for falsehoods. I mean, thinking back to, of course, Donald Trump's uh, preposterous claims about the 2020 election, which are often accepted now by mainstream Republicans. It seems like... Um, you know, lying no longer has the same kind of, I mean, even even like very obvious lies no longer have the same kind of uh, moral force uh, that they did before, at least inside the Republican Party. And I imagine uh, elements of the Democratic Party as well, given how polarized the situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let, I mean, it's essentially a sad commentary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming in loud and clear, Jonathan, let's unpack now before our break and perhaps continuing uh, after the break, some of the U.S. House's uh, GOP's, uh, their, their new rules in the U.S. House. Uh, uh, this was uh, the, the subject of, of last uh, week's uh, leadership struggle, which ended, what was it, in the 15th uh, call for votes um, to elect Speaker, now Speaker McCarthy. Uh, we have changes in this 
50-some page plan that Republicans passed um, this Monday night enshrining major changes. Um, normally, Donna, this is a routine step we don't even hear about in the news with any new Congress. Uh, what do you see in these new rules uh, after these high-stakes negotia- negotiations between McCarthy and these rebellious conservatives in his party? Well, McCarthy may very well have won the definition of a Pyrrhic victory here, <clears throat> where the things that he had to give up to get uh, eventually, as you mentioned, on the 15th ballot, um, enough Republicans to either vote present or vote for him that he could actually be sworn in as speaker um, is quite high. So one of the major uh, things that he um, acquiesced to was the motion to vacate the chair, mm-hmm. which um, he wanted that to be able to you could call for a motion to vacate a five um members vote uh, wanted that uh he got one that was the compromise that he made so one person could be a democrat could be a republican um can call for a motion to vacate and it is privileged which means that it will immediately be taken up on the floor um for a vote and and you could have these votes come up and and actually you could even have them fail but it still takes time away from other things if you're doing that and then of course we could see a repeat of you know some of the drama that we had and the 15 ballots to um, to get McCarthy in the first place. And um, and so that means that he, you know, has to be very attuned to the the people who did not support him for speaker in the first place in this sense. And, and we saw this um, when John Boehner eventually stepped down as speaker. In part, it was surrounding a motion to vacate movement that never actually came to the floor because in that Congress it wasn't privileged. But it was kind of chipping off at the things that made eventually Boehner um, kind of throw up his hands uh, and leave um, the speakership in in that sense. And so McCarthy has an uneasy uh, crown upon his head, if you will, because his uh, his um, uh, caucus is restive in this sense. And um, I mean, he really has to pay attention to the extremists. Um, in, in this regard, and and that's just you know one of the changes that oh. he has to um, to look 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 towards. Let's get a quick answer for Jay, one of our listeners who emailed with this question: Can any member call for a snap vote to kick out Kevin McCarthy, or does it have to be a Republican? As I understand it, it is a Democrat or a Republican, either one. There was a previous version, I think. Um, in some of the negotiations that that maybe made it just the Republicans. But as I understand the language that they finally hit upon, it actually could be a Democrat or a Republican. Okay. Uh, We'll take a short break and be back in just a moment with more from our political scientists this week on Politics Wednesday, Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa and Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University. When we come back, more on those changes to the U.S. House uh, rules. Also, we want to look at uh, the investigations launched by the U.S. House and the new committees to investigate federal law enforcement, national security agencies. Also, uh, together with Democrats, this was a bipartisan effort here to launch this examination of strategic competition with uh, China. We're going to lean on Jonathan's uh, China expertise on that. Join us with your questions 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with political scientists Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Donna Hoffman of the University of Northern Iowa, uh, lending us their expertise in the area of politics. And uh, you can lend us a question or an observation, if you'd like, on any of our topics, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Well, uh, we had that, <laughs> that memorable week of politics last week, um, after which Republican Kevin McCarthy was sworn in as Speaker after agreeing to significant concessions, changes to House procedure. What was it, 15 votes it took? Uh, that was the most since before the Civil War. After winning, McCarthy outlined his conservative agenda. We will hold the swamp accountable. From the withdrawal of Afghanistan to the origins of COVID and to the weaponization of the FBI. Let me be very clear. We will use the power of the purse and the power of the subpoena to get the job done. Notably, uh, afterwards, McCarthy also used an opportunity to align himself with former President Donald Trump. I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. Okay, Donna Hoffman, to you first. Uh, talk about the pros and cons of these new rules uh, with a more, I guess, open would be one word, uh, House with more debate. I've heard the argument. It gives it more transparency. A number of these conservatives were arguing for that rather than just having to vote on a, a bill that's hundreds of pages long that they'd hardly been able, had, had time to read. Um, uh, more transparency? You would think it's a good thing? Or is this a recipe for dysfunction? Well, one of the reasons historically why the House <clears throat> is... Um, is, as we usually talk about it, major, majoritarian in the sense that if you're the majority party, you know, you can pretty much get your way all day long every day, as long as your majority holds together. And there's the rub in this particular situation. Um, the majority has to hold together. So um, more openness here in one sense means more raucousness, more um, dissension within the ranks coming out. Um, into the fore and Republicans not attempting to some of the Republicans not attempting to, you know, kind of keep that in, in conference, if you will. We saw that last week in the vote. The mm-hmm. fight spilled out openly on the mm-hmm. floor of the House. Sure and I would expect um, more of that in, in that sense. And so it will be uh, a, and, and that means for Kevin McCarthy, it is uh, less it, it's less easy to manage that kind of situation. The House is 435 people and it has its rules, unlike the Senate. Uh, which are much more open uh, in part because it is a much larger body. And historically, those rules have developed because um, you need the majoritarian control there. That's just one of the natures of the institution. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, your predictions, observations about uh, the U.S. House in this Congress under McCarthy? Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the investigations go. I mean, one thing that I think came through from McCarthy's speech was that he's not terribly interested in having legislative priorities. He's interested in having investigative priorities. And some Mm -hmm. of them, of course, are going to require the cooperation of the executive branch. Um, And so, you know, um, we've unfortunately headed down a path, both 
a bit during the Obama administration and then more during the Trump administration where uh, executive uh, members of the executive branch often ignored congressional subpoenas. And so I imagine that, well, we'll have to see how the Biden administration plays it. But if they continue along the path that we've been going, it'll be difficult for Congress to enforce its subpoenas uh, for these investigations. Um, I think, the, of course, the, the really big and scary challenge coming up for McCarthy and the whole country is uh, the debt limit, which uh, is estimated to be hit around the third quarter of this year. Um, given that um, a, a lot of members of the uh, the House Freedom Caucus, the most conservative wing of the party, aren't interested in raising the debt limit or mm-hmm. are using interested in using it to extract concessions from the Democrats, uh, we may get some real last-minute uh, gamesmanship, some some games of chicken with the national debt, uh, which ultimately would be, if the U.S. were to default, of course, it would be uh, historically uh, disastrous. And so lots of people want to avoid that, but unfortunately there are now members of Congress who are looking forward to potentially a congressional, you know, a U.S. debt default. Um, and uh, McCarthy is going to have, is going to be swimming in some really dangerous waters, uh, but, you know, that by, by around the, you know, l- later in the year. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the investigations. You, you mentioned, uh, Jonathan, at least a, a couple of them. In just a moment, Jonathan, I want to focus on the, the investigation, the examination of uh, U.S. strategic competition with China. But first, um, um, let's talk about the House uh, launching a wide-ranging racing, investigation into federal law enforcement and national security agencies. Uh, this is part of Republicans making good on their promise to use their power in Congress to scrutinize what they have said is a concerted effort by the government to silence, to punish conservatives at all levels. Now, this was a party-line vote, unlike the China investigation we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, This will be chaired, this committee will be chaired by Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. He's a staunch ally of the former President Trump. Uh, He was, in fact, deeply involved in Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Donna, your thoughts. What should we expect from this select committee? Well, I noticed, Ben, you didn't use the formal title of the select uh, subcommittee. It is the select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Um, And so this is a subcommittee of judiciary that Jim Jordan's going to chair. It's likely he's going to chair this um, select subcommittee as well. Um, As it's composed now, it would be um, eight Republicans, five Democrats. And we've already heard the Democrats say uh, they will, it looks like, join this committee. They won't eschew it in the way that Republicans uh, did the select January 6th committee, Mm -hmm. because it's important that they be involved in this sense as well. Um, And so, you know, this is a committee that is, will have subpoena power. Its uh, jurisdiction is relatively open-ended in terms of investigating um, violations of civil liberties and how law enforcement agencies and other executive agencies have handled that. They're likening it to uh, a new quote-unquote church committee that was named after a former member of Congress, a committee in the 70s that looked at um, abuses of the um, FBI, in particular, uh, in surveilling civil rights groups in the 60s and, and 50s. And um, and so they're, you know, wanting to give a lot of attention to this. Um, but also let us remember that investigations will be coming out of lots of different places. There is a, a standing committee that's, that is that is the Oversight and Reform Committee that we will see investigations coming out of. Um, if we go back to, you know, the Obama administration, when uh, Republicans in the House investigated uh, Benghazi, they did so with a select committee and five different standing committees. And so uh, this is one of the things we oftentimes see 
uh, political science literature tells us about that when you get divided government in this kind of situation, uh, typically the investigations ramp up because there's no legislation here that um, will actually mm-hmm. pass uh, all three entities here, the, the president and the, the two chambers. Um, and so the legislation that we'll see being approved in the House will largely be performative. The IRS bill is one of those. It's not going to go anywhere. And so a lot of energy and attention can be devoted to these investigations. And that's what Republicans in the midterm election, uh, a lot of them ran on. Yeah. And so you said performative. So this investigation, perhaps we'll see what is uncovered or not uncovered. But performative means just the act of doing it is reaching the goal. Yes, exactly. I mean, and again, we saw it. With Benghazi, we saw it with the 60-plus votes that uh, the House of uh, Representatives did in the Obama administration to repeal Obamacare. Um, those were all performative votes because Obama was still president. Anything that they even maybe got through the Senate was going to get uh, vetoed by the president. Then when President Trump came in and they actually could potentially reveal, reveal, uh, repeal Obamacare, they weren't able to do it. Um, and so these are attempts to show you know, their voters, their base voters in particular, um, that they are making good on their election promises, uh, that they want to investigate Hunter mm-hmm. Biden. That was one of the top things that they talked about, that they want to you know, try to repeal uh, increased funding for the IRS, which is something that, that they did. Uh, again, it's only a House vote, um, but it's, it's signaling, it's showing their, um, their voters, their base in particular, um, that these are the things we'll do if you'll give us the, you know, the keys to, to, to Congress. And they only have part of the keys to Congress. Okay. Now, unlike this uh, newly launched investigation, uh, the Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, uh, let's uh, that was a, a vote of, uh, strictly along party lines, uh, 221 to 211. This other one, uh, this uh, the House Republicans and Democrats joining forces on, voted overwhelmingly in favor of a new committee to examine U.S. strategic competition with China coming after House Speaker McCarthy declared on the House floor uh, that neither Republicans nor Democrats could trust China anymore. Help us understand what uh, the bipartisan support here, and Jonathan, and what you expect from this committee focusing on China. Sure. You know, the dialogue around uh, Sino-American relations has really changed, uh, especially since 2016 uh, when, when President Trump was elected. And, uh, you know, the, the, the national mood towards China has just gotten a lot more sour. And now, in part, that um, reflects changes in American politics, but it also reflects changes in China, too. China has become much more assertive uh, in places like the South China Sea. China has, um, uh, you know, uh, gone after with economic sanctions and economic boycotts uh, South Korean companies and European companies in a way that they didn't do before. Uh, and Xi Jinping, of course, has this so-called unlimited partnership with Russia, uh, which, uh, you know, of course, alarms the United States and alarms Europe as well. And so there have been changes on both sides of the relationship to make it more adversarial. So it's not surprising that there's a, a lot of bipartisan support for a committee like this. I, I do think um, it, it, something like this could be worthwhile. Certainly, uh, the Chinese government is uh, has extensive espionage efforts in the United States and around the world that uh, probably need more scrutiny. Um, industrial policy is is a major issue that the U.S. has uh, backed off of From, during the Cold War. We we had a lot of sort of industrial policy and um, pushing uh, various parts of the economy to be competitive. Um, we're starting to see that again. Last year uh, we had the passage of the Chips Bill, which uh, increased U.S federal government funding for the semiconductor industry, which is clearly aimed at China uh, as a major competitor. 
Uh, China has done the same thing. China has poured money into uh, semiconductors and uh, building silicon chips. It turns out it's very difficult to do. And on the Chinese side, it's actually mostly failed. Uh, the, the Chinese have not have not had a great return on their investment. And in fact, there's a new paper uh, by the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, that suggests that China's industrial policy on the whole has not improved productivity in China. It, has, it increased employment. So you get you get the government has poured money into sectors of the economy uh, that have employed more people, but it hasn't actually really improved um, the Chinese economic performance in these areas in, in, in an interesting way. And so um, there's a lot the U.S. can do, but it's important not to you know, push too much, right? We don't want to have our um, industrial sector entirely dominated by Congress. Certainly. Yeah, that, that would but, be but un- unlike the committee, uh, the, the committee setup that we, we talked about uh, just a moment ago, this would not be performative. This is really uh, investigating, examining, and uh, making recommendations for action. That's right. I think I think we will see real legislation emerge from this committee. Uh, you know, given given the bipartisan nature of it, the fact that uh, President Biden has continued his predecessor's sort of tough talk on China, continuing um, to uh, work with European allies to try to isolate China in a bit. The U.S. is really, really stepping up uh, defense cooperation with Japan, which alarms China a great deal. Um, the Japanese are spending a lot more money on their military now, and so I would expect that. This committee has a lot to work with. There's a lot that they can come up with um, that would uh, hopefully serve the U.S. interest. Okay. Before this uh, Politics Wednesday hour gets away from us, I want to make sure we we talk about the, this bit of a political headache that has surfaced for President Biden. He has called, uh, just as some background, he has called former President Trump uh, irresponsible for hoarding sensitive documents at his private club and residence in Florida. Um President Biden uh, said this week uh, that uh, he was surprised to learn in November that his lawyers found classified documents in his former office uh, that was at a think tank in Washington. He does not know what the information they contain. Uh, Monday, the White House acknowledging uh, that his lawyers had discovered a small cache of um, Obama-era documents. Um, the Justice Department reviewing this discovery to determine how to proceed. Uh, here's the president speaking with reporters. Um, remember, he's in Mexico City for this two-day summit, or was yesterday. Uh, he said he was surprised that there were classified records at the office and that his attorneys are handling the situation as they should. And they did what they should have done. They immediately called the archives, immediately called the archives, turned them over to the archives, and I was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggested I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully. Okay, and Donna, let me turn to you. As I mentioned, the Justice Department reviewing this discovery to determine how to proceed. What do we know at this point about these documents, how this episode compares uh, with the Donald Trump case still under investigation? Well, we don't know a lot of details about the Biden case. I mean, we know some things, but we certainly can, with what we know, compare it to um, the Trump situation. And you know, there's similarities in the sense that, uh, you know, these are, are documents that are, are classified, but there are not a lot of similarities in the way uh, these two individuals have handled the situation. Um, and so, you know, we know there's a, there's probably about 10 to 12 documents uh, in the Biden um, group 
But, you know, we know that there's uh, triple digits of documents uh, in the Trump uh, case. The Biden and um, people who were, were cleaning out that office immediately um, notified NARA, the National Archives. Um, NARA went looking for the documents that Trump had. They knew certain things that had been in the media, like him, uh, the letters from the uh, Korean South, uh, North Korean leader, mm-hmm. um, were missing, for example. And they went looking for those and asked for them and eventually went to a court to get a search warrant for those things because the former president was not forthcoming. And he directed his lawyers to even uh, say that everything was um, surrendered. And then we find out everything wasn't surrendered. So it's a very, very different situation. Um, And we should note here that the Department of Justice does not uh, tell the public, hey, this happened and we're investigating it. Hmm. Um, And so there was a little bit of hubbub about uh, in early November is when this happened. Um, that they didn't immediately come out right before the election and say, ooh, this is what happened, because that's part of DOJ policy. They rarely, rarely violate it. We saw them do that in the run-up to the 2016 election with Hillary Clinton, for example. Mm-hmm. They're very careful in this sense. And um, and Garland's trying to be very careful in, in addition. He appointed, as you mentioned, um, a, a U.S. attorney that was appointed by Trump um, to oversee this, to figure out then, should there be, say, a special counsel appointed, as there was in the Trump case. So we're early days in that sense. Um, but so far, these things are um, not exactly comparable. Mm-hmm. Before our time runs out, I want to talk about the summit that just ended yesterday in Mexico. Um, President Biden having several hours of closed-door discussions with President Obrador of Mexico, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada, focusing on many things, the uh, climate crisis, uh, drug trafficking, economic prosperity, uh, trade, but also addressing a hot-button issue uh, in our politics, the southern border uh, crisis. Um, Let's listen uh, to the president uh, speaking. Uh, uh, He emphasized, uh, this is during a joint conference he had with those other leaders yesterday, emphasizing that his administration will focus on creating safer ways to immigrate legally and address the root issues of migration. And so we're trying to make it easier for people to get here opening up the capacity to get here, but not have them go through that god-awful process. We're going to continue our efforts to address the root causes of migration, uh, to help people stay in their home countries. I've asked the Congress for $4 billion to provide for that. We've also had our Vice President provide for uh, private donations of over $3 billion. Okay, Jonathan, help us understand this migration crisis uh, that these three leaders in North America are trying to tackle together. Sure. So um, President López Obrador of Mexico, of course, this is his problem, too. It's not just a problem in the United States. Mexico has lots of migrants who ultimately are trying to get into the United States or to get into Canada, uh, but wind up in Mexico often for a long time. Many uh, Salvadorans, for example, fleeing horrific gang violence in El Salvador, uh, people in uh, central other other Central American countries, Honduras and Guatemala, fear, fear, fleeing economic crisis or gang violence, who wind up in Mexico often for a long time, waiting to be processed to enter the United States, and so um, it's in Mexico's interest to solve this problem as well. Uh, what's, it was interesting to me to see the the warm, the much warmer relationship, at least performatively, to use to use Donna's term, of uh, between President Biden and President López Obrador. Uh, of course, the United States and Mexico in the past have, and certainly during the past administration, had much much chillier relationship. 
Um, uh, Lopez Obrador had essentially nothing but praise uh, for Biden, which is uh, a step forward in terms of at least the rhetoric. Um, what what these countries can actually do about it is pretty limited. Biden, of course, is tied uh, both by Congress and by the courts um, that with this, uh, this is a Title 42, which is has a very complicated judicial history and is currently uh, on review. Uh, which um, so Biden Biden's hands are essentially tied as to what he can do, mm-hmm. uh, and so the U.S. has to, in, in a lot of cases, rely on the goodwill and uh, effectiveness of the Mexican government. Uh, so Lopez Obrador actually has a you know has a big role to play here, arguably a much larger role to play than President Biden does. Mm-hmm. We have about a minute left, Donna. Your comment on this meeting of the three North American leaders and um, a focus their focus on the southern border crisis as we know it in this country. Yeah, I wanted to touch upon something uh, Jonathan brought up, that, that there's seemingly a warmer relationship um, here. The um, You know, we know that when Biden was elected, uh, Lopez Obrador was a little bit late in congratulating him. The relationship had not been particularly warm. Uh, one of the th- interesting things that happened, and this is sometimes how diplomacy goes forward, um, one of the interesting things that happened is Air Force One flew into a, 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 a an airport that was a little bit removed from where they needed to be. <coughs> Pardon me. And um, they were in the limousine. Uh, the, the two presidents were in the limousine and going through, you know, traffic um, for for quite some time. And that is often how Biden likes to, you know, do things in terms of developing personal relationships. And maybe we saw uh, that car ride being somewhat fruitful in terms of the rhetoric, as Jonathan mentioned, that we got out of uh, the end of this summit as well. So the car rides sometimes might be uh, <laughs> diplomatic tools. It can work not just for politicians, for other folks like us, for instance. Uh, let me throw this in on, on the way out here in the few seconds. Senator Grassley uh, was sworn into his eighth term um, in the last few days by Vice President Harris. Um, he has served in the Senate since 1981. This makes him the longest-serving Republican in Senate history. That was a record previously held by Utah's Orrin Hatch. He also becomes dean, became dean of the Senate, a position held by the longest-serving member of the current Senate. Thank you so much for your expertise, Donna and Jonathan. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. Ben. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.